You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey, folks. You know, there's only two things in this world that scare me. One is prepubescent gym rats warming up on my project in front of me. You know, pad sniffers, smell like Skittles, small hands. And the other thing that scares me, lawyers. But Dan Markoff is here to help. Climber, lawyer, Enormacast fan, and partner at Atkins and Markoff, Dan has set up an email hotline to field your inquiries about any type of lawyer you might need. Email climbinglawyer at gmail.com with inquiries. Dan knows this shit scares you too. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. With support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget our friends at Defiant Bean Roasters. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Norma at checkout for a discount on great coffee. Or click on the Defiant Bean banner at enormacast.com for more information. And now back to the show. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Norma Cast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is March 9th, about uh, 10 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. That's daylight savings time. Important distinction, folks, because springtime climbing is here, at least here in the U.S., here in the western U.S. It's getting warm enough to climb. Anyway, this is episode 53, a conversation with alpinist and all-around climber Josh Wharton. Now, it is March 9th which is quite late for this one. I understand that. I know that. But as many of you know who follow my uh, various social media outlets that I have been climbing in Mexico for the last month, and I managed to put out the last episode while I was gone remotely from Besasiachig in southern Chihuahua. But I didn't have this one prepared. And uh, anyway, got back, got it done as fast as I could. So here you go, episode 53. So yeah, a little bit about the trip. Some of you might be interested. I went down to a place, uh, like I just said, called Besasayachik in southern Chihuahua, and there's a wall down there called El Gigante, which uh, wasn't really on my radar until I saw a video with Sonny Trotter and um, Alex Honnold climbing down there that was filmed by my buddy Andy Burr, and uh, that kind of put it on the radar. But it uh, turns out a friend of mine, Luke Laser. And a couple German guys uh, had put up a big, long route on that thing. And it's about 3,000 feet tall. So it's a legitimate big wall out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, me and Hayden Kennedy went down there along with Cal Dempster and Justin Griffin. And all four of us ended up climbing that wall in two separate parties. So it's quite a good adventure. It's the Wild West down there. You know, you hear about all the sort of drug problems and everything else. We didn't have any real problems other than a small nervous run-in with a military checkpoint in the middle of the night where we shouldn't have been. 
But uh, other than that, it's totally mellow. So um, I want to recommend that people look into this place. I know Potrero gets a lot of traffic. El Gigante and Besasiachic is a little bit different feel. There's uh, there's quite a bit of developed climbing, but not nearly what Potrero has, and definitely limited infrastructure. But if you're looking for a little bit more adventure kind of feel to your Mexican climbing adventure, that definitely recommend going down to El Gigante. So uh, you could just message me somehow, Chris at normalcast.com if you're interested in details about climbing down there, because I can hook you up with the beta and uh, definitely a lifetime experience climbing that wall. A big, long, bolted route, oddly. It's pretty interesting to uh, spend two nights on a wall, but your rack's only 18 quick draws. Pretty cool. Pretty different. Anyway, uh, what else do I got going on? Uh, It's March. I feel like there's been quite an uptick in interest in the EnormaCast in the last couple months. I'm not sure why that is. Um, I really don't have an explanation for it other than I think some of the times these things just kind of hit a stride or sort of hit kind of a volume where it sort of bubbles over. But um, anyway, I want to say that I appreciate all the new listeners that seem to be coming on lately and also all the people that have been uh, supporting the show with donations. Some of you guys are buying t-shirts. Some of you are just sending me notes of encouragement, which are very, very helpful in keeping my site going. So yeah, just want to say thanks. Thanks for coming on board and thanks for staying on board. Some of you longtime listeners and uh, keep the comments coming and uh, we'll keep this thing going. We're well past 50 now. I made it. I jumped over that fence and got to the other side. So we'll see how long we can keep this thing going with your help. With that in mind, as I've sort of threatened, uh, I'm going to start doing some more appearances and some more live events coming up. And uh, the first one on the map here this spring is I'm going to be at the Red Rock Rendezvous in Red Rocks out there in Las Vegas. Uh, put on by Mountain Gear, and I'm going to be doing a couple different things at that, a, a couple different live shows, one from the Black Diamond booth, sounds like, and one from the main stage, plus hopefully getting some interviews. So I'll be out there hanging around. Hopefully, if you show up, uh, you'll be sure and say hello. Anyway, that event is in Red Rocks on the, uh, I think it's March 28th to the 30th are the dates. And over at Mountain Gear's website, mountaingear.com, I think you can click on the banner over there and get information and buy a ticket or whatever else you need. Bunch of clinics, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a climbing festival. Tribe gets together, celebrates, drinks a lot, has a good time. So hopefully I will see some of y'all there. All right. Well, I'm psyched to be back on the mic after a long absence, but let's go ahead and get to uh, the interview with Josh Wharton. Um, what can I say about Josh Wharton other than, you know, in a lot of ways, Josh Wharton is a climber's climber. He's not a particularly big superstar, but that belies the fact that uh, year after year, he's been getting done some serious ascents in the mountains. And as we talk about in the podcast, he's also one of the more well-rounded climbers out there, actually cranks on all sorts of different mediums. Gotten a fair few requests to have Josh on the show, and he was nice enough to sit down just after um, his wife had their first baby. So they were hanging out in Boulder, and I caught up with them actually at the library. We rented out a little room at the library and got this one done. So I hope you enjoy it. And for those of you who are worried about whether or not you have what it takes to become a great climber, we'll find out that Josh Wharton actually cried quite a bit, quite a few tears on his first climbing expedition. So if you're doing any better than that, then sky's the limit.
think we can record if you're ready. I'm ready. You are. Okay. Uh, what is the name of this place? The Robert Johnson, Richard Dawkins. George Reynolds. The George Reynolds branch of yeah. the Boulder Library. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm sitting in the George Reynolds branch of the Boulder Library system in a very warm, very uh, industrial, no, not industrial, clinical-looking little room. I'm kind of sweating it out. Yeah, kind of sweating <laughs> it out with Josh Wharton. And uh, Josh, you've got some uh, major life change just happened to you. Yeah, big news. I'm a new dad. Yeah, new dad. Uh-huh. Like a pre-new dad. You got a little, I know. little bit of a preemie. She came early. She's anxious like me. What's her name again? <laughs> Hera. Hera. Yeah, so she's a little Greek goddess. The goddess of the hearth, mm-hmm. if I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah family and such nice so mm-hmm. so what are you doing in boulder then uh so where my wife and i are living at the nicu at the hospital for a few weeks while Hera grows and gets stronger mm-hmm. but everything's cool yeah everything's good you... she's healthy and uh ladies are happy all so, right yeah. awesome yeah and you you were just telling me that you uh you were in ure Yep, I was in Uri doing some mix climbing and uh, a little ice climbing, and then got the call that I need to be home, and I made it in five hours from Uri to Boulder. Is that fast? I don't even know. Yeah, usually it takes like seven. Oh, right on. So I just went 90 the whole way and made it for the berth. Nice. With like an hour to spare. Oh, right on. Just straight into the scrubs. <laughs> straight in. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, you've, you've climbed all over the world. You've done, you know, we, we'll get into it in a little bit. You've done all these horribly heinous ascents. Mm-hmm. How was the uh, how was the birth of your of your daughter? It, it, I have to say the actual birth was pretty damn mellow. Really? Like my wife's a Jersey girl and she's tough. <laughs> she doesn't take any shit. Was it? And of- she did so well. Like the labor was mellow. It seemed like an hour of hard pushing at the end mm-hmm. but it seemed way less traumatic than the videos i saw right so and then what about it, like your brain how how did it wrap itself around it <sighs> i thought i would be more panicked than i was but mm-hmm. it wasn't really i mean kind of what i do a lot of the times is try to control being panicked right like being right. in scary situations and not be sure freaking out and so it's kind of like that you know? right on yeah that's it life life lessons from from climbing yeah even got you through the birth of uh-huh. your daughter yeah for sure nice so are you guys gonna you know get a little brother or sister for this one or no you thinking about that we're already? one and done <laughs> that was the deal going in that's the deal coming the deal. out yeah oh nice yeah yeah is, that's is there the some sort of contract that's been mm, signed on this no deal? but aaron and i are both like 110 percent on that and we were going into it so Really? Yeah. Well, let me tell you something about that. No, I see. I know where this is coming because everybody else says that. But Erin and I have had like long conversations about this and she's on the same page. Okay. All right. So it's going to be okay. All right. Don't worry. (laughs) Well, here, I'll say this then. This is something different Mm -hmm. is that if you can make it through to where you put the baby stuff away. Yeah. You know, two couple years from now. Mm-hmm. then you're, you, the decision won't be reversed. Well, I know. And that's yeah. exactly Aaron's theory is mm-hmm. that, you know, like new moms, the baby grows up too quickly and you don't get, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as they're older, you're like, oh, I want another baby to right. hold and love. And so she, she gets it. So she's, yeah. She's Cause my, f- my brother, it was going to have to, and then my sister-in-law was like, we waited too long because once we'd put the baby stuff away, she had the opposite effect of like, I do not want to get that crap out again. Yeah. I do not want to deal with that again. If they'd have done it right away when they were both in that stuff, then mm-hmm. they would have made it. They would yeah. have had another one. Yeah. But 
And I think the nice thing about that plan too is it like you know that if there's a difficult phase, you're like, well, she's going to grow out of it, right. and we're not doing it again. Right? Okay. So <laughs> you can just look to the future. Like, okay. Well, cool. All right. Well, we didn't necessarily bring you in to talk about babies. Your, your I'm sure babies. everybody listening out there wants to hear about babies. I don't know. You'd be surprised, actually. Um, Though, you know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll talk about it again right. when your life is changed upside down. Yeah. yeah your we'll baby. You, you don't know what's coming yet, so you can't really speculate. So, <laughs> But yeah, obviously brought you in to talk about rock climbing and mm-hmm. alpine climbing and ice climbing and bouldering and all these other things. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, I like to sort of bring it around to sort of our relationship. Uh-huh. Um, I do that almost every show because it makes me feel like I'm part of the climbing community mm-hmm. and rad people doing rad things, even though I'm not. But <laughs> the interesting thing about you is that um, I sort of started to hear like rumors about you years ago. Mm-hmm. And and this must have been like in a Black Canyon, like your, your heavy Black Canyon phase. <laughs> okay. Because oddly, and I, I was going to mention this to you earlier, but oddly... I have this real strong association with the Black Canyon. People sort of look at me as some sort of like pretty foundational Black Canyon climber, but uh-huh. that's that's all PR. Like I've really <laughs> just done like the you know the standard pantheon of like classic routes. I've uh-huh. never put up any routes down there. Yeah, and I think just by virtue of maybe climbing the scenic cruise over and over again with various people right like i have this reputation as this like black canyon guy yeah but i do remember hearing about this guy that was down there like killing everything and um you know basically trying to do all the routes Mm -hmm. and or at least it seemed like that Mm -hmm. so that was kind of the first time i had really heard your name Uh and then uh, i think we just kind of met subsequently in rifle and then i um tried to break your ankle that one time i don't remember that you You shouldn't have have reminded reminded me short short roping you on top of the uh on top of the um, no, Ruckman Cave? I don't remember. But. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Never mind. I'm cutting that out of there. So let's start there. Like, you had some sort of obsession with the Black Canyon at one point or another. Yeah. My obsession with the Black started, um, I guess, in the, around 2000. So I went on an alpine climbing trip. Kind of the first big trip I ever went on was to Pakistan with uh, a friend of mine, Brian McMahon, and Mike Pennings and Johnny Kopp. Mm-hmm. And... Mike and Johnny had like an amazing trip. We were total newbies. We climbed some little stuff, but um, got inspired by those guys, and they were big Black Canyon climbers. And I remember, you know, we came home early, and Mike told me where his Black Canyon binder was at his apartment at the time. And as soon as I got home, I went and photocopied that, and then started getting after it because I was inspired by those guys and wanted to climb there a bunch. Mm-hmm. So did you end up like going down there and living down there? Or what, what was no, your situation I would drive, at the time? I would basically drive during the season on the weekends to mm-hmm. go climb a couple from of routes where? from Boulder. I was okay. going to school at the time. I was in okay. college. Going to see you. What years were the, was this? Um, I started going to school fall of 97 okay. and graduated in 2002 Okay, with an English lit major. Nice. Me too, bro. Yeah. yeah really putting that going, to good use. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> talk now. I don't write. The, yeah, that makes sense because in 97, I would have been like right at the end of Cal, my California, and I then moved to Gunnison around then. Okay. Yeah, so it was probably filtering over from, from living in, in Gunny, actually. Right. And hearing about this guy down there. Okay. And so... Who else was it? Like Cameron Cross at that time was getting after it a yeah. little bit, early 2000s, yeah. start selling stuff and... 
Mike and Jeff were climbing there a lot. Johnny was climbing there a lot. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, like even now, that was that was like a really cool era in the mm-hmm. canyon down there because. You know, all these classic routes have been done, but then you guys started picking away at the fringes and finding new lines and doing some some pretty cool mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, Topher and uh, Jared were were kind of in that era as well. Yeah, I see those guys as the guys who really took the first ascent reins by the horns. I've never been. I've only done a few new routes Come there. On, actually, Super was? I mean, that is a brilliant. classic. That is a classic. <laughs> But yeah, I've never been that into, to be honest, into doing like first ascents in the place like the black. Uh-huh. They're often a lot of work. Right. And uh, I much prefer doing the second ascent of a uh-huh. good route. Um, you get the best of, you know, best of everything. So let's back up then. What did you, uh, where did you come from before that? Before I, I grew up in New Hampshire. Okay. And went to school and I went to like a prep boarding school in Maine for high school. Okay. Yeah. And then wound up going out to see you. Uh, kind of for bike racing, actually. I was really into bike racing at the time. Huh. So that's kind of why I came to see you. Um, that's why I did through high school and as a kid. A bike racer. Yeah, Josh I know. Gordon was a bike racer. I know. It's pretty rad. I mean, endurance, right? Yeah. But it was, I mean, it's a terrible crossover sport for climbing, really? to be yeah. honest, because I could do like two pull-ups when I got into climbing. <laughs> yeah, giant yeah huge booty and yeah. giant thunder thighs and, uh-huh. yeah so um but you did start climbing and in, in, yeah in i climbed a little bit as a kid and like sort of second half of high school mm-hmm. i started to get into climbing and but since i was at boarding school i wasn't able to climb mm-hmm. as much as i would have so it's kind of reduced to vacation so did you i read that you started with your dad yeah that's true yeah. i did some climbing when i was really little in wales with my dad mm-hmm. because my dad was born in Liverpool. Okay. And his um, godfather, Scotty Guire, uh, ran a guide service in the Lakes District mm-hmm. um, in the 50s and 60s. And so my dad used to go spend his summers up there with his godfather and was a guide there and climbed. And so when I was, I think maybe maybe as young as seven, eight, something like that, mm-hmm. we, went, uh, we went over to Wales and I climbed some routes. Okay, so you were born here. Yeah, yeah, I was born in the States, okay. in New Hampshire. Yeah, And so you'd go back and climb in Wales. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, That's just pretty cool. just one trip as a kid. Oh, okay. And, um, but we were there for, I think, six weeks. Mm-hmm. And I actually just totally hated climbing. We would basically walk up to the cliff and I would cry for like 45 minutes. And then my dad would slowly <laughs> convince me to try the route. And then he would just free solo ahead of me, you know? He's like, God, what am I raising? Yeah, I know. He like, thought I was such pathetic. A he thought I was a total wimp, you know? <laughs> and he was, he's total Brit, right? So he's right. a terrible instructor. Like, right, he offered right, no right. instruction right, whatsoever. Right. It was like, put the rope around your waist. Yeah. I solo off. Rope comes tight. You start climbing. Yeah. Um, so that was like the extent of what he taught me, basically. And don't fall. Right. Don't fall. Because <laughs> daddy Which is a good tip for a scared well. kid. <laughs> so, uh, so that really wasn't that helpful for me. No, it wasn't. It was. Home and like, no, so yeah. Never do that again. I mean, those were kind of my childhood experiences, mm-hmm. basically like crying and top roping. Mm-hmm. And then in high school, a couple friends of mine were into rock climbing. And I was like, oh, I've done that before. Sure. You know? Yeah. And uh, so once I started doing it with my friends, mm-hmm. it started to seem cool to me. I wasn't doing it with my dad, you know? Right. It was like a independent thing. And uh, that's when I really got into climbing. Sure. Uh-huh. And did it, did it dovetail back to climbing with your dad? Yeah, it did. Because as soon as I really like had a passion to start for it, it kind of reignited my dad's passion for climbing. Because mm-hmm. he hadn't really been in climbing for 20 years or something. 
and uh, it got him remotivated and excited and sort of like he became an armchair mountaineer mm-hmm. over the top kind of. What was he doing for a living? Uh, he was a art teacher at okay. a kind of a famous prep school called Phillips Exeter. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of, he had like uh, done art throughout his life and then wound up being a headmaster at a prep school in Seattle and then moving back and running this art department and, and teaching art at Phillips Exeter. Okay. So that's, uh, that's what, what he did for a living for mm-hmm. the last 25 years of his life. Right. Right. Uh-huh. And he passed in 2009. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So did you guys, you know, did he come out here and climb with you as well? Or was it, how, how much involvement did you guys actually have on the rocks together? Um, we didn't actually climb all that much right. together. His body was pretty beaten sure. up. Um, we, I reclined a little bit together when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. but he kind of had bad knees and all that stuff. So he didn't really climb anymore, but we definitely talked about climbing all the time. Mm-hmm. Like when I was going to college, he would call me up and not ask like, how's class going? You would say, what'd you climb this week? Right. <laughs> That's awesome. You should go do this route, right. you know? So looking at your career and looking at and knowing who you are now mm-hmm. personally, like, um, it seems like you, you drew a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of old school ethics into your climbing in the beginning. Uh-huh. I mean, that's probably partially East coast. I mean, New yeah, Hampshire yeah, kind yeah. of thing, but mm-hmm. did any of that come, I mean, are you then getting some of this like old British <clears throat> attitude? Oh yeah. I was like heavily influenced by right. my dad's attitudes towards climbing. I mean, the first couple of years I climbed, we thought that you weren't supposed to fall off if you were leading a route. You know, I had like a, a handful of stoppers is my whole rack. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd climb five fives and with the rope tied around our waist and stuff like that. So I was heavily influenced by my dad and his opinions about climbing. And so you're wait, you're climbing with the ropes around your waist and five five nuts. But what like this is relatively modern age. Yeah, though no, this yeah. is like mid nineties. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to clear that up because people were like, oh, yeah, that's the way they used to yeah, do it. No, in the no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I had learned what I do from yeah. him. So, um. Well, it's funny. I made a joke in a po- an interview podcast I just did was, you know, that I, in 1989, I read Climb. Uh-huh. Climb! Yeah. <laughs> which ends in 1978. Okay. And so I was in 1989 climbing like a guy from 1960. <laughs> that's all I knew. I was like, okay, this is how it's yeah. done, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, I was saying I was probably climbing like a guy from the late 50s. Right. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're like, your bros are like, yeah, we, we, we know how to rock climb. You're like, oh, I know how yeah. to rock climb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember saying things to my dad like, you know, oh, I fell off the route we tried today. And he'd be like, mm, maybe you should be trying something easier. Exactly. You know, which... Nowadays, you never go climbing and don't fall off, right? right? You've learned to climb out there in about the the mid-teens, you get back into it, mm-hmm. climb with your bros, mm-hmm. but you're also getting into biking mm-hmm. and anything else? Um, another passion I had growing up was fishing. Oh, okay. I grew up on a lake, so I spent a ton of time fishing, uh-huh. just out, on, out in the canoe by myself, right? fishing growing up. Um, it was a bass lake. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, I always like growing up, literally when I was maybe 10 to 12, I wanted to be a professional bass fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> there's still time dude there's i mean i would time. watch bill dance on the weekends right. and yeah, stuff there's and... still time for that yeah you could have sweet. two careers uh-huh. that's something you can do i'd probably have to move to louisiana or this something. is true yeah or texas uh-huh. yeah big yeah. big reservoir state somewhere mm-hmm. anyway so when you're climbing with your bros in in uh in your teens like what mm-hmm. did that look like where were you guys going and and what um, were you getting into a lot of top roping at patuckaway 
because I grew up like three miles from Patuckway State okay. Park. There's a shout out for my listeners who climb at Patuckway. Yeah. So Both the New you Hampshire guys. Represent. Both you guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, um, so I did a lot of climbing there. That was in my first year. That's probably where I climbed the most. Mm-hmm. And then in my second year, we started to, I think we all, you know, I got a harness, a pair nice. of rock shoes, nice. um, got a car. So I could branch out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, we'd go to the Gunks every once in a while, which is a place my dad had climbed a lot because he went to Princeton. Okay. So we'd go there. We'd go up to North Conway, go climbing there. Right. And then we sort of got some exposure to, you know, how climbing operated mm-hmm. back then. Right. Back, um, way back in the, yeah. in the middle, late 90s. And so in, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, I, I know the answer to this, but... Your mom passed away when you were 16. 16. I just turned 16. My Mm -hmm. mom got cancer, um, pancreatic cancer, um, in the fall of 94, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And she died six months later in that spring, um, 95. And it actually was a huge influence on me and climbing, actually. It's kind of when I was getting into climbing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I'm sure as lots of people know, climbing is a great escape from the world, sure. the focus it requires. And that definitely was transition when I lost my mom for me from biking and bike racing into climbing. And I started to go do a lot more climbing and be way more interested in that okay. than I was in bike racing. So, yeah. So you lose your mom, you're getting out of bike racing mm-hmm. and you've, and you're also coming back into this climbing. And did you find that maybe that was part of strengthening your relationship with your dad as well? Or for sure. I mean, my dad lost his partner of 20 years mm-hmm. that he loved. And I lost my mom that I loved. Very, I was much closer to my mom than I was okay. to my dad growing up. Um, she was kind of my play buddy. We would do stuff, go skiing on the weekends and do stuff together all the time. And so losing her was really hard because I didn't have, I wasn't that close to my dad at the time. I was really, really young. And so, yeah, definitely climbing kind of brought us together, you know, gave us something to talk about and spend time, you know, thinking about together and, so yeah, it changed lots of things in my life. In some ways, I think it's changed my my changed my whole life. Really, I think I'd probably have lived a very different life had my mom lived. So you know, I don't know if I'd be a full time climber. I don't know if uh, you know that would have it would have been the same at all. I might be like a lawyer back east or something with a Volvo. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, along those lines, I was going to ask you that. So it sounds like uh, I mean, you've got a uh, a. I don't know what your your mom's education was like, but you mentioned your dad, you know, Princeton uh, educated, works at a prep school, is an Mm -hmm. art teacher, you know, sort of a lot of intellectual pursuits Mm -hmm. in your family. Mm -hmm. I mean, would you say that? For sure. I mean, my mom was a lawyer and a judge. Um, She kind of came from a very blue collar upbringing in Detroit, Mm -hmm. but... um, but was definitely a very smart woman and started to practice on her own in New Hampshire and did very well for herself and all that kind of stuff. And so, yes, I'm definitely the dumbest person in the family. And are you an only child? (laughs) I have two older brothers from my dad's first marriage, but they're like 10 years and 12 years older than me. So I didn't grow up with them and they were on the other side of the country in Seattle. Okay. So I didn't know them very well. You know, I didn't have, I mean, they're my brothers, so I know them, but I didn't grow up with them. I didn't have that kind of tight relationship with them. So. so then it comes time to go to college, uh-huh. and that's when you decided to go to CU right? and uh, pursue English Lit. I actually was a biology major at first. Oh, really? Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, I wanted to be some kind of, I don't know, conservationist or something. 
And, uh, cause I grew up fishing and loved being on the lakes. So I was like, oh, I'll work in the fisheries or something like that. But then I hated memorizing stuff in science classes. I hated the big giant 500 person classes you went to. And I enjoyed the English lit classes mm-hmm. and it meant that I could go climbing all the time. Right. Cause you basically just read mm-hmm. and write papers for being an English major. So yeah. it seemed really easy to me after going to prep school. So that's, and what I really wanted to do was climb. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And so you'd moved out of biking or did you start biking? I did. I here? mean, I was on the, the CU team for like really? two months Oh, really? when I came that's in the it. fall and I, I quit pretty immediately. I mean, biking is such a heinous sport right. to train for like six hours of sitting on your ass. And you walked and past a mirror in your outfit. Too, right. It's like, just like, uh, no, no, it's not working for me. <laughs> am, I, am I really wearing this? <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to your climbing career then. Okay. So you're going to see you. And mm-hmm. uh, when did you start thinking about like uh, away from this rock climbing thing and into these big mountains? Because that's really what, you know, we will, I'd, I'd like to talk to you um, about in terms of, you know, enlightening me because that's not my world at all. I guess for me, I think that is another influence from my dad. You know, it's like a natural progression back in the day. That's what, you know, climbing was just one big thing. And the end result was going big to do big routes in the mountains. So I kind of always aspired to go do Alpine routes. That's always something I wanted to do. And that first trip to Pakistan in 2000, which I was 19 or 20 at the time, kind of was like flipped a switch in my head of like, this is the thing I really want to do. And had you figured out, had you learned your basics here climbing on the front range? Or? Yeah. we. I mean, my friend Brian and I had climbed on the diamond mm-hmm. and been to the wind rivers and done things like that. But I probably couldn't have like pointed out Pakistan on a map the first sure. time I went there. So what made gave you the idea to do that? Um, Brian was roommates with Johnny at the mm-hmm. time. And mm-hmm. so Johnny asked him, they wanted two other guys to go on the trip. And right. I said, hell yeah, I'll go. Right on. Sounds good. You know, and my dad was obviously like, yeah, hell yeah. I'll nice. just help make that happen. So, so, uh, yeah, that's how kind of how we went the first time. So what I kind of want to get into is this progression. It, it does seem pretty normal, but there's a point at which, you know, climbing, goes from this thing that you're doing in addition to all this other stuff Mm -hmm. to something that you've decided, you know, this is, this is your thing. I think I've always been the kind of person who is 110% into whatever I'm doing, you know, whether it was fishing or whether it was biking or whether it was climbing, I've always operated that way. So for me, as soon as I got into climbing, it was like all I thought about and all I wanted to do. And and when I came to see you, I think the biggest switch that flipped when I moved to Boulder is that the weather is so good here. Mm-hmm. When you're an East Coast climber, the weather's crappy all the time. And there are all these seasons where you can't go climbing. And when I got here, I was like, oh, it's sunny 300 days a year. I can go to Eldo every day after class. I did it. Right. You know, because that's what I wanted to do. And if you had the opportunity to do it, I went climbing. So. You know, I'd climb just days and days and days on end. Did you start incorporating any sort of training in all this or was it just no. about climbing all the time? No, it's just about climbing. I was like yeah. way from the old school. For me, there was no mention of training. It was, you went climbing to train. You know, maybe my goal would be, I try to do a new 510 every time I go to Eldo. Right. You know, that was the kind of, I've always kind of like been into doing, I've never liked repeating routes. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to do more and more in different stuff. Like I never do try not to do the same route twice if possible, just cause I think you get a bigger volume of experience. And I've been like that from the start. Right. You know? Just always doing new, just doing st- new stuff. Like try to do every five ten in Eldo. Right. I do every five eleven in Eldo, you know, and that's kind of through college. That's 
really how I operated. Same thing with the Black Canyon. Yeah, and no, I I've do seen all the routes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get a little obsessive because it's in the front of that binder that you gave me. Yeah, in fact, I yeah, probably since I copied that entire bind, binder, I probably have a copy of your list at my house. If you ever lose yours, all right, good to know. There's an archive of it <laughs> at great. my house now. Okay, so. awesome. I'm trying to get a finger on how you became this guy that it seems like is just constantly going on trips, pushing your limits, and, and just and quietly kind of doing it in a way. So I guess we'll, we'll need to talk about like, how did you make your living after you graduated from college? Good question. Good. <laughs> so, um, I mean, were you just a dirt bag or were you, um, able to just, uh, piece things together to stay on the road or. So a little bit of like the background, of my mom dying okay, is that she was a lawyer and she left me a chunk of money that was for school. And, um, so I was able to pay for my college through that money she had left me. And then there was a little bit of money left over. I didn't have access to that until I was 25. So when I finished college, I built fences in Boulder Mm -hmm. for a year. Uh, and I was, I mean, I lived very, very frugally. Sure. Basically just so that I could climb and just made just the money I needed to, to climb. So I was able to like piece together a little bit of blue collar labor and boulder and a little writing work. Cause I was starting to get writing work with some of the climbing mags and stuff mm-hmm. and able to make it happen. And that worked out. I'm a little bit like hesitant to talk about that because in the past people have called me like a trustafarian mm-hmm. for my climbing this, you know, in the years past. And it would sure. piss me off. Cause I was like, it's not only fair if someone loses their mother when they're a teenager and you know, it's not as if she left me $3 million or some right. insane amount of money that right. I'm set. You know, it was like a little bit of money that was enough for college and a bit after like a down payment on a house kind of thing, you know? So that definitely helped. Sure. That definitely helped like kind of bridge that gap between when I could make some money from climbing mm-hmm. and when I was just fresh out of school and not wanting to get a full-time job and, mm-hmm. and deal. So, but I think like a lots of dirtbag climbers and lots of people, like if you really love climbing, you figure out a way to make it happen financially. You know, you, you figure out a way to do it, whether yeah. it means living in your van for a couple of years or right. whether it means working some shitty job that you don't want to do. Like if you really love it, you'll figure out a way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of what I did fresh out of school. And I was, when I was in school, I had my life subsidized, paid for sure. essentially. So yeah, me I too. Climb when I want. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I was uh, an English major as well, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show. And um, same sort of thing came out here because I wanted to go climbing in the mountains. And mm-hmm. and exactly like reading and doing papers is not like sitting around memorizing for tests right, and things right. like that. Yeah, so it's funny that you bring that up because mm-hmm. only I did it a decade earlier, you know, up at, C- or at uh, Colorado State. Mm-hmm. But ended up climbing in Eldo and all those sorts of things. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's and then for me to make my ends meet, I I became a guide when I left mm-hmm. school, you know. Mm-hmm. But again, allowed you to keep climbing and yeah. doing those sorts of things. So yeah, I never wanted to be a guide. I never wanted climbing to feel like work. Well, you know, it's funny. 
don't take this the wrong way, but you definitely don't strike me as the guide type. No, I don't think you. <laughs> I don't know if you're patient. You have that pay, pay, that like infinite the man of infinite patience that yeah. you sort of need. Uh-huh. I mean, I didn't either, but mm-hmm. but uh, you don't strike me as no offense. Right, right. <laughs> so many, so many, that, I take it as a compliment. <laughs> but, you know, you, you learn how to teach comedy from your dad. So yeah, <laughs> we know how that went. Yeah, back yeah. In Wales, so yeah. you'd be the same way. Let's go. <laughs> Just tie it around your waist. Come on. So. <laughs> That's pretty. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of options, but usually it's manual labor and and uh, and making ends meet, like you said. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so coming off this trip from Pakistan, I mean, what was your next sort of uh, big expedition goal? The next summer, I went to. Uh the Cirque of the Unclimbables with Johnny in 2001. Because I was kind of like locked into the college schedule. So I had to do, you know, where my vacations were. And then the summer after that, I went back to Pakistan with Brian McMahon for this thing in the Trango Valley called The Flame, um, which was the unclimbed spire at the time. It was super beautiful. And that we were inspired to do after our first trip there. Sure. And uh, that was a really cool trip because that was the summer right after 9-11. So 2002. Um, and there was no one in the Trango Valley. We were there for maybe, I think we were there for 50 something days. Uh huh. Not a, another single party. Really? Because no Westerners went to Pakistan that summer because of 9-11. Right. And, uh, so super cool. Like we didn't, you know, you wouldn't see any white folks around Scardu or. I mean, they didn't go because of fear or because some regulation that you guys because of through? because of fear okay. it also was hard to get a visa right we actually got um you know where you had tickets to be there i think in the country for more than two months like mm-hmm. 10 weeks or mm-hmm. something and they were only issuing 30-day visas so this is classic like college kid brian and i got our visas and they were only for 30 days and instead of trying to deal with the problem up front we, at the airport, we literally went into the bathroom. They were handwritten visas, uh-huh. smudged the ink right. underneath the sink so you couldn't read how many days it was, right. and then got on the plane, and no one ever hassled us. Nice. Because in Pakistan, it's all just like some guy with a stamp. Sure. You know, drinking tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... So, that's... Uh-huh. But that trip was really, really cool. That's still one of the like the coolest trips I've been on, actually. Tell me about the climb. The climb was um, maybe... Uh, four or 500 meter spire, kind mm-hmm. of like a half dome sized wall up to a little Castleton sitting on top of it. Okay. Super beautiful aesthetic peak. And, um, yeah, we just did like a new Alpine rock route up it. Mm-hmm. Um, really cool, good quality climbing. And so primarily rock climbing, primarily rock climbing, a little bit of mixed climbing, right. and snow climbing in there, but, um, it was way back at the head of the Trango Valley. So the approach to it was kind of involved, you know, it would take, the first time to just to do the approach took us two days from base camp. Okay. And then by the time we had done the approach four or five times, um, kind of like dealing with weather and stuff, we were, you know, we whittled it down to eight hours, but it was still a pretty epic approach. So, and yeah, it was just a trip to be there with no one else around right. and, you the know, full on and, wilderness mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that must've influenced sort of just wanting to keep that kind of dream alive. In terms yeah. Of doing these trips. Yeah, and that was so and then it was, you know, next year I think I don't know where I went the next year. I think maybe to Peru or something. And then the year after that I went back to the Trango Valley with Kelly, did a read on Great Trango. Yeah, I just I mean I just What was the name of that route? Uh the Azim Ridge. The Azim Ridge. This is uh-huh. the infamous like forever ridge with no water and yeah. thing like that. <laughs> I actually, you know, I'm glad you brought that one up because I wanted to ask you about that. Uh-huh. Because it, 
Um, I read, I mean, I knew about it, but I read something on the internet just recently and it, it was just like a one line where it said that they had, they, they climbed this route, the Zim Ridge in so many hours with no water. Mm-hmm. And that was like the whole sentence. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, why didn't they bring any water? <laughs> yeah. It's funny how like doing something really dumb can make something really legendary. <laughs> It's pretty entertaining. Uh, Kelly's a good storyteller, so he's made it pretty real legendary. But basically, it was my terrible beta. Oh, really? That totally screwed us. Because my experience in Trango Valley in the past had been that you find water in these little pockets. Sure. And okay. I hadn't really considered that, oh, we're on a ridge. Right, right. There's not, not a lot of pockets, <laughs> Right, se. not a lot of pockets. Like, um, So we brought one canister for what amounted to be a five-day route. Right. So second night, melting ice and snow, canister runs out. And that was the end of that. Keep going. (laughs) So so you guys are climbing for three days without any more Um, Basically like two days. By the second day, we did a couple pitches and had to repel. Like two days. Two days with... You know, you'd put some snow in your water bottle right. and you'd maybe get some right. drips. And then on the last bivy, there was kind of like uh, some mud. So we were able to make like a puddle that a little mud puddle collected in and use our straws to sip up, you know, maybe an ounce or two each. You had straws? Yeah, we had little straws. The Alpine straw. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not Alpine climb that? with a no, straw? Dude, I oh, alpine the Alpine straw is fantastic beta. Really? Yeah, you I stick guess, it in yeah. the back of the crack. You know, you want like the... Clear right. tubing that's flexible. Right. So you stick it in the back of a crack or in a little puddle. Is that a common thing? Is this something I've been yeah. missing? Yeah. And this is what your plan was. With I'm originally. surprised like Petzl hasn't come out with one. Like with a <laughs> logo on it? Yeah. All right. Well, you heard it here first. You owe, you owe uh, Josh Wharton some sort of finder's fee if, you, if they do. But uh-huh. All right. So I get it. So you're, you're using a straw because uh-huh. that's what you're saying. Like you normally find water. You just whip that bad boy out. And, and yeah. You've got, and a little you've trickle. Got nice. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you rock the tin foil, you know, to collect a little piece of tin foil against the rock so you can collect water mm-hmm. where it's just flowing right against the rock. Wow. Have you not done that? No, dude. I, <laughs> you don't listen to the show because I do not alpine climb. No, I do not alpine climb at all. So so tell me about this, this route. It was a rock route. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I read something where it was like the worst rock in basically in the world or... No, no, that's a different route. Oh, it that is. That was different. That was the next year, two years later. Okay. We climbed another. That route was around. That was a route um, called uh, Northridge of Shingu Sharpa, which is in a different valley, the Nangma mm-hmm. Valley. And that route was kind of similar to Great Trango in the size of it. You know, it's maybe like a five or 6,000 foot rock ridge that hadn't been climbed at the time. And that was terrible. Horrendous rock. Like, I think we, Kelly figured out we did like 54 pitches or something, but there wasn't a single one. I would do it a crag. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. No. Like not even one ten foot section of good hands. Uh-huh. Just chossed the whole really? way. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So that was uninspired. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you keep coming back to these mountains. Well, let it's me ask challenges. you about that then. Um because one of these things that is that has been sort of uh obsessively burning at you is is one of the late talks mm-hmm. is that right mm-hmm. yeah yeah i've been to late talk one four times now so tell me about that what is it what is it about this mountain that well 
I don't know if you know this about me, Chris, but I'm not good at letting things go sure. when it comes to climbing. I didn't know that. <laughs> Although you did forget so, my, uh, my, my short roping incident. So. Yeah, I can, I can let short roping go. Okay, but. good. <laughs> but uh, so I saw, when I was in college, actually, I saw Jeff Lowe's slideshow at this, at this little um, climbing shop he opened in the Netherlands. Okay. And it was all about his lay talk trip in the late 70s. Right, with uh, Michael Kennedy. Uh-huh. Danini. Yeah, it was Kennedy, Danini, and George Lowe, right. the four of them. And they climbed capsule style, the four of them, so meaning they had, I don't know, like 800 feet of rope, and they'd fix their rope and then move camp up and then do the same thing. Two guys moving camp, two guys working on fixing lines, and basically put in like complete badass effort in this thing. We're up there for 24 days mm-hmm. living on the route. So anyway, I saw this slideshow and was super inspired by it. And the time I was going and doing all these alpine rock routes... And I felt like, anyway, at the time that I'd done a lot of the Alpine rock routes that I wanted to do, and I needed to, I needed some, like a new challenge, something new to learn. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn how to mix climb and learn how to do bigger mountain stuff. And, uh, Latok seemed like a really cool choice. It's just incredibly beautiful, had this rad history behind it. And so that's how I wound up going there the first time. And then obviously we didn't have the weather to try. And that's how I kept going again and again and again. Um, and basically never really had any weather to try the thing or mm-hmm. conditions properly in Alpine style. Um, one thing about the way those guys climbed in the seventies, it actually like fit the lack of big weather windows. Mm-hmm. The route's hard to do in Alpine style. Cause it's kind of rare that you get a window. Okay. That, you know, it's such a long route. You need like at least five good days or something for it to clean and then have three or four days to climb it and, get off the thing and so with with capsule style with what they were doing they were able to sit out storms is that the difference yes exactly right. and climb on mediocre days right um on because days they had gear to, to they had tents to go back to and food to right you know to sit there and wait mm-hmm. and so um so anyway i've learned a lot from going there so much i've learned a lot i've really grown like my climbing has grown a lot from that experience i did How so um I did, like, one of the things I did when I went to that mountain was I signed up to do the URA Ice Festival comp- mix climbing competition right. for a couple of years because I wanted to learn how to mix climb. I didn't really know how to mix climb at the time. And my experiences, I'd done some, but I wasn't very good at it. And my experiences with it, I didn't like it enough that I would go. So I knew by signing up for the competition, I'd force myself to go. And so I did that for a few years. I learned a lot, um, which has really helped me mix climbing the mountains and other routes, other places. It taught me to be persistent. Like a lot of times I feel like alpine climbing comes down to luck so much, but you can make your own luck if you put in a lot of effort and time. Um, I think that's true. And, uh, so even though I haven't succeeded on lay talk, I, I take pride in the fact that I didn't give up on it. You know, I didn't like, you know, I, I've put everything I could into it. I've gone many, many years, spent tons and tons of money, <laughs> made lots and lots of sacrifices. And so, Despite the fact that I failed, I haven't even really even gotten a chance to try. Mm-hmm. I'm still pretty proud of that effort. You know, even though a lot of other people see it as like a crazy obsession, I see it as like, I tried really hard. Right. So, and I'm, I'm happy with that. So as long as I'm in climbing, as long as I try the best I can, mm-hmm. I'm always happy with that effort. It's like the things I regret are the times when I didn't try as hard as I should have, or I let myself use some little excuse to get out of it. I think we all do that in our climbing, you know. You know, from days at the crag where you're like, oh, I'm not going to try that because it's not quite right or whatever. And, and later you're like, oh, why didn't I? So I think 
um, as long as he tries hard, hard as he can. It's, I guess that was rambly, but so do you know Hayden's been on the show? Yeah, and we talked a bunch I've, about the ogre. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, he told us a pretty good story about that, and I, I guess I really only have one question. This was the last time you went to do Lay Talk. Yeah, you ended up switching valleys and then climbing with him and Kyle. Is that kind of how it went um, down? It's the same valley. Oh, it it's is. the same valley. Yep, just like series of events that yeah. led to me going right, climbing right. with those guys as partners bailing and such. So it got pretty grim, at least the way he told it. Mm-hmm. How, what, what's your perspective on it in terms of what he told us or listening to that episode? You had gone along as a three-person climb on the Ogre, but, mm-hmm. uh, but basically got pretty hammered by altitude. Yes. And then they left you at a camp. Mm-hmm. went to the summit and came back down mm-hmm. and descended with you. It's kind yeah. of the nutshell of the story. Yeah. And it sounded like you got pretty worked. Uh-huh. It's definitely the scariest thing that's happened to me in the mountains by yeah. far. Um, for me, per- kinda, per- was, for me personally. I'm curious of your perspective because, you know, Hayden, he, he spoke of it really seriously, but at the same time, we're, we all joke so much about the mountains. It's right. It's kind of hard to tell, you know, what how serious it really became. No, I, plus, I don't think he wanted to kind of disparage you in any way right. in terms of talking about it. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, he and I are great friends. Mm-hmm. And that trip, uh, yeah, I. so the events that led up to me climbing with them, basically like they had climbed on something higher than I had earlier in the summer, a few weeks prior, and I hadn't been very high. And the route on the Ogre involved a lot of easy climbing going up to you know, you gained a lot of elevation very quickly because the climbing down low was so easy. Right, like, to get to sort of the, the rock. To get to where the summit, group got yeah. more technical. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on the first day, we were soloing, basically just, you know, soloed probably, I don't know, 1,500 meters or something, 1,200 meters, like a lot of elevation gain. And I had been sick a couple of weeks ago prior to that and also hadn't been high as those guys. So I just think climbing that high that quickly for me, not being as well acclimatized kind of worked me and by the set morning of the second day i was had a headache and then by the end of the second day felt really sick as we got higher and we bivvied at 6900 meters that that night and i knew i was really sick at that point like i was spitting up blood and um knew i had a heinous headache and knew i had some sort of cerebral or pulmonary edema or something um and but then again, I also, this is my fourth trip to the Choctaw, so I knew how rare it was to have good weather there. Sure. And I knew how much luck and how tough it is to get a chance to do a route like that. So I wanted the, I wanted Kyle and Hayden to continue, um, you know, if I thought I could sit it out there for, and give them a chance to go tag the summit, I thought they should. So I encouraged them to do so. And, um, you know, that was maybe a dumb decision. Right. Maybe, a, you know, I, I felt like if I had been in the same spot and put all that time and effort in, like I would have at least wanted my partner to be like, okay, like I want you guys to have a chance. Like mm-hmm. I would have felt the same way. Um, I don't know if I would have made the same decision as Kyle and Hayden made to go. I don't know. Like the circumstances could be, it's just hard to say. Cause I wasn't looking at myself as a third person. I don't sure. know what they could see in me. I know I felt horrible, but I don't know how bad it was. But anyway, I, they went, they went to the top, which is great. They sent, came back and I just gotten sicker laying there. And just the nature of the route meant that we had to do a ton of down climbing and kind of messed up terrain to get, to get down. Um, that ordinarily is super easy, 
but in my state, I just shouldn't have been down climbing like easy fifth class and mm-hmm. fourth class terrain and snowfields and stuff. But so that's kind of what was full on about it was the fact that like I was forced to be down free soloing and when I was ultra sick and right and uh, you know hadn't eaten couldn't keep things down and was pukey. So yeah, it was definitely pretty serious situation. Sure. So are how like uh, I mean, do you have like a good sort of chronological memory of it or were you sort of in and out or I have a pretty good I don't really like remember all the details perfectly but I have a pretty good memory of it yeah I mean I I was basically sleeping when I was in the tent the whole time those guys were climbing just laying there not moving um I think the last like actual effort I did was like helping them chop out the tent platform sure because I just wanted to lay down (laughs) at that point um and then I have like spotty memory of the descent, uh-huh. basically. But as we got lower, we went the better I felt. Right. And by the time we, you know, we had one on the descent, we had one really shitty bivy where it was like sloping and the tent collapsed and yada. And I barely even wanted to move. Wow. And uh, those guys were like, "Oh, we got to get up. The tent's falling over." And right. I'm like, "Oh, whatever." <laughs> Just laying right. in my old puke, bloody puke and stuff. And um. And then at the next day descending, I, you know, it started to feel better and better, but, uh, those guys definitely did a great job, like helping me out and rigging. I definitely wasn't rigging the wrap anchors right. or anything. Yeah. Uh, I was just along for the ride. So, uh-huh. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it all worked out in the end. Right. They sent and I'm here. So it's all good. Is that, is, I mean, <laughs> no other takeaway. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't feel like I. I mean, those things are there. Like, if you ignore that stuff in the mountains, the fact that things like that can happen could have just a bit easily been one of them that got sick. Sure. Could have been, you know. And I can't say, I can't judge them for what they did. Like, I encourage them to go. Mm-hmm. I uh, I can't say that I would have done differently. I would have done the same. I don't know. Like, okay. you make those decisions, and I don't, I don't, it's so easy from a distance to put judgments on people and sure. the decisions they make in the mountains and stuff, but... And I think if you ignore the fact that you could get sick, you could die. Your partner could mm-hmm. get ripped off by an avalanche. Like then you're ignoring the realities sure. of what's going on up there. And then you shouldn't be there to begin with, you know, and then you're tricking yourself, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I accept those risks when right. I go in there and I know there, there's going to be some battles out there. There's going right. to be good times, but there'll be some tough times too. So where does, uh, where does late talk one stand at this point? I don't know. I decided after that trip, cause it was so rough that I needed to take a couple of just like financially. It was grim. The whole partner thing was grim. The ogre climb was grim. I was just kind of like worked by that trip. And I felt like I needed to take a little time away from Pakistan and not deal and just like go and go a place where you do a lot of climbing. Mm-hmm. You don't do a lot of sitting around sure. and you don't spend a lot of money for sitting around. And, and so that's what I've done the last couple of years. I'm not saying that I'll never go back to late talk. Sure. I could definitely go back there, but it's not, I'm not going to go next, you know, I'm not going this year, especially right. with my daughter just being born. I'd like to be home for a little bit. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, when you just said that, because you just got back from Patagonia um, not too long mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Again, after taking, I think you hadn't been down there in a while. Is that right? Yeah, I took a couple yeah. of years off. Yeah. And it's funny that, that that, you know, traditionally is seen as a place you go to sit around in bad weather. But here you are like, oh, I think I'll go to Patagonia yeah. somewhere. I can get some climbing done, you know, this year. I think that speaks to maybe like uh-huh. what you were sort of up against uh-huh. over there by Latok. Yeah. That, yeah. You're, that you're safe and, and easy alternative to Patagonia. <laughs> so, um, well, we're, we're getting along here uh, pretty good. But I do want to backtrack a little bit and ask you about um, your, your 
accident and your recovery from that uh-huh. because you broke your back, right? Yep. And that happened how many years ago? Uh, I broke it in 2010. Okay. So just a couple, just four years ago, not yeah. even four really. Yeah. And it's, uh, while you were just talking and we kind of like blew through your climbing career, I realized that, that, that actually has become sort of this blip on this career. And yet when it happened and you know, you, it happened in rifle Mm-hmm. And you were living on the Western Slope at the time, you know, so I was real familiar with it going down. You know, it was it was an extremely serious accident, and it, mm-hmm. and it affected the climbing community in a serious way. I mean, we were, all of us were very concerned and like, you know, what's going to happen? This guy's mm-hmm. broken his back. And and what I'm, I guess I'm trying to get at is that, you know, we just skipped over it because the way you recovered and the way you came back and, and what you've done since then is like, it's like, made it into this little, uh, yeah, you broke his back a little while ago. You know, like <laughs> it, it hadn't even occurred to me until today. I was like, oh yeah, I need to ask him, God, when did that even happen? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm getting at? So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and, sure. And how it affected you and your climbing and I feel like I bring a lot of like drama that. to this interview. No, well, that's what these <laughs> interviews are about, man. That's me. I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get it out of you, but I, Actually, pol- and, and I, I apologize you, for seeming dramatic. The, the, <laughs> you know what? I, I want to back up there too because one of the really interesting things about you, Josh, is that is that all this stuff. I'm I'm forcing you to talk about it, mm-hmm. but you know there is all these massive things that you've done or been involved in but but you're not you're actually the opposite of dramatic when when you talk about it which is a compliment and mm-hmm. i think you know coming from your dad's legacy too is like a compliment like mm-hmm. you don't it's very british right run around spraying about how rad you are so mm-hmm. and i realize you're on this program because i asked you to come mm-hmm. on and so does everybody listening mm-hmm. so but um the only thing you're going to have to do and and this might actually embarrass you a little bit is tell us what happened <laughs> It is truly embarrassing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all the dangerous climbing I'm doing, and I broke my back stick clipping. Stick clipping. And yeah, I, yeah, I was rope soloing up a route uh, with the intention of replacing a bunch of bent old hangers. That it's were a on the public route. service. You're public, putting yourself Doing a little public there. service, a little bit of selfish service, because it was a route that I actually use for dry tooling practice right. in the winter. It's a total crap route. Yeah. Um, that no one really climbed, and it had all these bent old uh, cold shuts on it, um, homemade cold shut anchors, and I was stick clipping up it or putting new hangers on it, and unbeknownst to me, I had stick clipped the beaner over the top of the hanger, so it wasn't actually clipped through the eye of the bolt hanger. It was just resting there, Right. and I'd replaced the bolt, and then I was using my grigri to cinch back up the rope and went to clip in and popped and decked from... Probably thirty feet. Right, because when you're doing these rope solo things, there's always extra rope in the system, and yeah, and yeah. I just wasn't. I mean, I was. Right. I mean, we trust one bolt all the time, sure. so I wasn't doing it in the, the most right. safe way. And, mean, and to kind of explain this a little bit is uh, a cold shut is actually kind of this old school vertical hanger that it's got sort of a shelf on top of it, exactly, yeah. and so it's different than your normal bolt hanger. They mm-hmm. were. The people kind of fabricated them. They're mm-hmm. kind of a hardware store thing. And so the beaner ends up sort of staying there for the time being because it's sitting on the flat right. shelf on top. Yeah, it was as if I was hooking right. and I didn't even and I right. didn't know it. So when you probably when you pushed out to, to pull your daisy up is when it finally came right. off. Okay. Yeah. And okay. So I fall. That's terrifying. 
Yeah, yeah. like I I thought the hanger had broken. Right, right. But anyway, I fall. I break my arms and my back because I put my hands down. To like sure, you fell sort of flat. Yeah, I fell yeah. like straight on my ass yeah. basically, and uh, screaming in pain. I was there. It was like a weekday morning in Rifle. Um, well, I don't know, probably nine a.m. or something. I was sort of like, I don't really remember this part very well, but I crawled to the road somehow, mm-hmm. and some fish hatchery guys found me and got an ambulance, and I wound up in the rifle hospital. Yeah. And what happened to your back? I broke my L1 and L2, and I had a compression fracture of my, or a burst fracture, rather, of my um, L1, which is kind of a scary thing because that goes in your, can like affect your spinal cord, and mm-hmm. I had this little shard of bone when you looked at the, at the um, CAT scan that looked like it was sticking into my, compromising my spinal canal. Sure. And so they were like concerned, are we going to need to go in and take that out? And yada, yada. Luckily, I didn't wind up getting surgery. Right. Um, if they don't, if they don't damage, don't they usually then break down eventually? Yeah. As so long they, as it's, so what so I find after like seeing several doctors, the, the doctors basically told me that if that piece of bone is just fluid in there, over time it will dissolve. Okay. And I'll get that piece of spinal cord or spinal the the space that my spinal cord has back mm-hmm. um but they're like you know you're more risk for being paralyzed if you were to break your back in the same place again right but it's like i don't fall on my ass from 30 feet all that often right so yeah like, you probably uh, couldn't do it again yeah it was a good the recovery was crazy in the sense that like people don't really get climbing in the general world and doctors don't really get climbing right so they, you know, they envision, when I talk to them about rock climbing, they envision like cliffhanger. Sure. Or, you know, vertical limit. And I'm like proof right in front of them because I'm all beaten up and broken. So it was a hard thing to get like a straight answer of, are you going to be able to climb? You know, will I be right. able to climb again? Can I lead again? Is my back going to break again if I take a lead fall or sure. you know, things like that? It wasn't actually until I started... Um, the Australian guy that does, uh, his name's escaping right now, but he writes a little medical thing. Julian for Sanders. Julian yeah. Sanders. Yeah. I emailed with him a little bit and he looked at my cat scan and he was like, oh, you'll be, you know, you'll be fine. It's going to take six months or whatever, but mm-hmm. you'll be back at it. And so that was really re- good to hear. Well, let me ask you that. I mean, we've been talking about uh, a little bit about your personality, you know, here, here. And, uh, you know, this guy that's like, I'm all in, I'm focused or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I maybe you did, but I can't imagine, you know, were, were there moments, I guess what I'm asking is, were there moments where you were, like, despondent, like, this is it, I'm I'm done climbing, or? I mean, there definitely were moments where I was way depressed. You can right. ask my wife. I mean, I definitely was like, I hate having to sit around. Sure. So I hate being hurt. I mean, when something like that happens to you, people always say stuff like, oh, you know, they, what a great opportunity. Write a guidebook. Explore <laughs> a career. You know, do this. Like, find these positives. And all you're thinking is, fuck, I just want to go climbing. Right. <laughs> you know, that's what I love to do. And so that was really... My focus was mm-hmm. getting healthy and getting back to climbing. And that's what I wanted to do. I I wasn't sure if I'd be able to do it at the same level I had before or what, but that that was just going to take time. I knew I'd be able to climb right, eventually. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, well, and again, you know, I, I sort of was able to kind of watch it from the periphery because we have all these mutual friends. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you just, how's Josh doing? And, oh, this happened and this happened. And then mm-hmm. um, somebody made that little movie 
but you dan- uh, doing your aerobics with the old yeah. ladies, which is pretty classic. Yeah. What, what is, uh, who made that? Uh, this friend of mine, Jacob First, who okay. lives here in Boulder. Yeah, yeah and that, uh-huh. that's still, all, must be on Vimeo. Yeah, you can go check it out. See yeah. me doing water aerobics. Doing rod aerobics with all the old ladies. And, yeah. And was that, were you in Estes I just moved. I just moved right. to Estes that summer, like right. the month after I broke my back, we you moved know. to Estes, yeah. And it just kind of seemed to me that, again, like as these stories filtered back, it was like there was some point at which you clearly had decided like, okay, now this is what I'm doing is I'm recovering. Right. And I'm, this is I'm every day I'm going to just hammer at it. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of a decent assessment of how you went about it or? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you hear like, I don't know how many climbers out there watch like sports center and are into mainstream sports, but you hear like big time professional athletes talk about how they think injuries define careers like how you bounce back from those. Cause those guys are getting hurt all the time. Sure. You know? And I, and I think there's some truth to that, you know, it's like your mentality of how do you bounce back for this? And you know, Tommy Codwell, good friend of mine, Tommy, perfect example, cut his finger off anything that's made his climbing career that much more incredible, that much more amazing and inspired him that much more, you know, it like revitalized him. And I felt like breaking my back was a similar thing. Like, you know, it made me realize that this is what I love to do. This mm-hmm. is what I'm going to figure out how to do no matter what. Sure. And so I'm going to get after it and do what I need to do to get back there, whatever that back there is. Sure. Um, I actually expected a rash of self mutilation after Tommy's thing. <laughs> People chopping like off young their fingers. Kids, like 12 year old boulder I guys. Know. Whenever like, I climb with them, I always yeah. bitch that it's easier with nine fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Um, let me ask you one last sort of little tangent and then we'll, we'll wrap this thing up so one of the things also that i think defines your career in sort of an uh, unusual way is the fact that um you seem to be so good at a whole bunch of different disciplines and the reason i say that is because you know and I, i'm certain you can probably back this up but traditionally in alpinism you know that's not really the case <laughs> you know it's like Standard album is a little chubby. Yeah, you know, I mean, regardless, I mean, it's it's a matter of time, it's a matter uh-huh. of commitment, and everything else. So, you know, you you've proven yourself able to sport climb really well. You 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 can track climb on rock really well. You're a good alpine climber. You know, you're like, yeah, I just entered a couple uh, mixed competitions to see if I could learn how to do it, and didn't you basically won them both, didn't you? I won three years in a row. Yeah. yeah. So, uh-huh. I mean, so, and I ask this to a, a lot of my guests to, to different effect, but, you know, mm-hmm. is there something about the way you approach it that's, that you think gives you some sort of advantage or defines, you know, the way that you're able to succeed? Or do you think it's just a matter of, of you know, sticking with it? Well, for me, climbing, um, since I started, has always been something that had all different types of climbing in it. Mm-hmm. And something that helps keep me motivated is being able to switch between those disciplines because they're so different. Mm-hmm. I mean, bouldering on some tiny little heinous boulder problem is completely different than trying something like LATOC. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, keeps it exciting. If you're going to do it full time, um, you know, it makes it way more interesting and a way more diverse experience than if I was just going to the crag every day and patting my head against the wall trying to do one specific route. It also is really nice if you get hurt. Cause you can mix it up, you know, you have something like I, right now I have a hurt finger, so I can't boulder. I was bouldering a ton, but for the last few weeks, I've just been going mix climbing uh-huh. cause I can grab onto a nice tool and my finger's okay with that. And, um, so I think having like those, that diversity of experience is really something that I enjoy. 
and makes climbing have a lot more longevity to it um, and have a lot more to do. So I do, do, that's one reason. And then I think the thing in the States, why we see so much specialization is because just the geography of the States, there's not many places where you can live and like have access to good alpine climbing, good sport climbing, good bouldering, good track, like all those, that kind of, the front range is actually kind of unique in that way. I mm -hmm. think maybe some, maybe Washington um, would be another place where you could live, but you know, in New England, the weather's junky all the right. time. You can't go rock climbing in the winter, really, unless you're really... Yeah, I think you're kind of out of luck up in Washington a bit as well. Yeah, but at least there's really good gyms there. Right. So, um, so anyway, I think that that's part of it. I think that's why you see the standard in European climbers be higher. Like, there are a lot more European climbers who are better in multiple disciplines than there are in the States. Because in the States, if you want to be good at multiple disciplines, you have to want it. Right. Um and there aren't that many people that do. Have you, have you found at all that, that other people want to like put you into some sort of category at all? Does that make any sense? I mean, I guess I'll, de I'll define it like this. Like, you know, again, when I first sort of heard your name, it was associated with the Black Canyon uh -huh. and, you know, pure trad climbing. Uh -huh. And, you know, some of your cohorts as well down there, you know, had very traditional you know, approaches to climbing mm -hmm. weren't really that interested in clipping bolts, although most of them are now, <laughs> but you know, and like kind of have that, like I am a track climber sort of died in the wool. And then as I started to get to know you, I'm just like, wow, this guy will just about do anything. I mean, mm -hmm. am I the only one that stereotyped you or does that? <laughs> well, that's a good stereotype. I yeah, want to be known right. as somebody who does everything. I don't like it when people think, no, I meant is... the stereotype of, of, of looking at you as just a die in the wool tradster or, yeah, I get that a little bit with like mixed climbing and ice climbing. Sometimes people think mm -hmm. that I'm just a mixed climber and ice climber, which I could, it is funny to me because I often feel like I put the most work into bouldering uh -huh. of any discipline. That's the thing that I'm the worst at right? relative to, you know, the vast majority of relative. people. Relative. Yeah. And, um, and I put, so I put a lot of work into that. Uh -huh. Um, and that actually is the form of climbing that I think feeds all my other climbing the most. Like if I boulder well then I can do everything else pretty well. We're not necessarily like if I'm mixed climbing a bunch, I won't necessarily be able to rock climb very hard or boulder right. very hard. But if I'm bouldering hard, I can generally do God damn it. Everything else That's, pretty well. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> that's what I've been missing. So go bouldering people. I know, if you want to get strong. It's I mean, that's really funny because you know, here's this guy, this big mountain climber in a lot of ways. That's what you're known for, as you said. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone utter that, that the, the sort of essence is the bouldering. Mm -hmm. So, well, if you think about it, it's too, it's yeah. funny. I think bouldering and trad climbing are the two closest, like in terms of relation of the disciplines, because trad climbing, you are often bouldering on a rope. Sure. You know, you're climbing a bunch of easy climbing up to a little difficult section. Sure. So it's basically just bouldering with the annoyance of your, and I find bouldering to be terrifying a lot of times. Yeah. Bouldering well, so. is also requires quite a strong head because yeah. you have to climb off the ground and make decisions about, okay, is this safe? Like, am I going to go for it now? Right, or, right. Yeah. So I think it has a lot of, I think bouldering is actually very, very cool. I, I really enjoy it. I really like it. Well, cool. So you, you got a kid now? You're, uh, Are you going to delete me from your cell phone, Chris? No, it's cool. I got, no, dude, I'm that guy. I cross over. I don't okay. have kids, but I hang out with plenty okay. of friends with kids. But no, I just kind of wanted to see if you if you had put any thought into as the last question into you know your climbing life going forward with this little one who yeah, of course, who's, who's, of course, know, of your loins and depends right. on you and is, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, sure. Um, I think, well, this year 
I'm not going to do any longer trips. I'm going to be home more. I'll do some shorter trips and go on some alpine climbing trips, but not be gone for a long period of time. And then, um, after that, I still have things in the Himalaya and big routes I want to go do. And, um, but I never go into those routes with like, I'm going to die on this sure. route. You know, I just, I, that's not what it's about. So I'm going there to as cliche as it is, I'm going there to live and do what I want to do, not to do something death defying. So I realize there are risks associated with that and, you know, stay away from routes with objective dangers as much as you mm-hmm. can. But, um, you know, we'll see. But anyway, I want to obviously live to be an old man. So. Sure. Mm-hmm. So you don't think she's going to soften you, take those edges off a little bit. I don't know. Thus far, she's only been here for a couple of weeks, but thus far I feel like if anything, it just makes me more aggro about my days. <laughs> Right. Because, you know, yeah, like of the time. time, I'm like, oh, I can't just come back tomorrow. I better right. get her done today, right, exactly. you know? <laughs> I got duty tomorrow. So, and I've noticed that with a lot of friends of mine who have become right. dads. If anything, it seems like they get more driven. Yeah. Which is a little scary for me. So, yeah. I'm going to have to, like, tone right. that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah. I have it. The, the nice thing is, is I have a really good... Um, I live in an awesome place where there's lots of mm-hmm. convenient climbing of all styles to do that inspires me. Mm-hmm. And I have an awesome training facility right at my house, like a really good garage with a woody and tread wall and the whole right. nine yards. So I'll get to spend lots of time with Hera and also get to climb a ton too. And you're a better half. Yeah. She's understanding of all this. Yeah. She's awesome. She signed up. She mm-hmm. knew what she signed up for. Yeah. So yeah, yeah she... Aaron. Aaron yeah. is her name. Yeah. We've been together forever and she's amazing. Yeah. So. She's a cool, cool lady. So, yeah. All right. Well, congratulations on uh, the new start with the, with Thanks, the little man. one. And uh, I really appreciate you sitting down Thanks. right in the middle of it all too. Thanks, man. Yeah. Good to see you. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and I want to thank Josh for allowing us such a good glimpse into his personal life. It was um, quite generous of him. Remember, if you want to support the EnormaCast, the easiest thing to do is to head over to EnormaCast.com, the website, and click on the Help Out tab. There's a bunch of different suggestions of easy things you can do to help out. Keep in mind, if you're stoked on the show and want to rep, you can send me an address at chris at enormacast.com with a request for stickers. I usually get those out. If I don't, please tell me again that you want stickers. Um, sometimes I lose track of all that stuff. It's only me here at the Enorma studio. Anyhow, the other thing you could do is buy a t-shirt. Click on the t-shirt banner over there and that'll take you over to the website where you can purchase a t-shirt and represent. I still have not run into a t-shirt in the wild randomly on a person I did not know. So I'm looking forward to that someday, but we need to get more out there for that to happen. All right, folks, get out there and have some fun as the weather warms up. And don't forget to check your knot. The goddamn plane has crashed into the mountain! Oh, man, come on. Who are you going to believe? Those guys are... We dropped off the damn money. We? I. The royal we.